I'm Keith Stern, the rabbi of Temple Beth Avodah of Newton, Massachusetts, and this is TBA Now, a podcast featuring issues and concerns that affect our temple community and the people who make it an interesting, dynamic place to be. Everyone has stories to tell. This is the place to hear them. In this episode, we hear from Nikki Baumer, a gifted pediatrician at Boston Children's Hospital. Nikki treats children with neurodevelopmental disabilities. She is also a noted educator in child neurology and developmental pediatrics. In addition, Nikki is the director of the Down Syndrome Program at Boston Children's Hospital. She's a warm, sincere professional. We think she's terrific. Come give a listen. Nikki Bomber, welcome to TBA Now. I am so glad that you've come in to have a conversation today. Thank you so much for having me. I wanted to start, as I always do, by asking you a little bit about your Jewish life growing up. Where did you grow up and what was it like? So I grew up outside of Philadelphia, in the suburbs of Philadelphia, and Jewish life was a really important part of my family. My father's father was actually the architect of the temple that we belong to. And we were really very um, intimately involved. And in fact, whereas most of my neighborhood growing up all went to the temple that was walking distance from my house, we went, you know, 15, 20 minutes away to this, this temple because of our special connection there and really was an incredibly important part of our family's traditions, what we, what we did during the week. My parents go to Shabbat services there Regularly, uh, my sister has been an integral part of the community there, and um, it has just been a really important part of our of our life for as long as I can remember, really. And uh, how did that come into play when you got married? You know, I I married a non Jewish man, <laughs> which no one would have believed. Okay. <laughs> but no, in fact, he he was raised Protestant, and in fact, his mother is a minister. And so when we started dating in college, actually, you know, I I think I was barely 18. I just turned 18 when he and I first met each other. And as we started getting to talking, and it was a few years before we actually started dating, but, you know, right away, I disclosed a couple of important things about myself and my family to him. One of them being that, you know, I definitely was planning to raise my children Jewish, And, you know, if you ask him about that now, he'll sort of say, you know, I was asked at a very young age to sign on the dotted line for something that I did not know what I was getting myself into. But actually, as you know, um, we became really involved in this temple really through Josh and through his involvement in the Barnum show. He and our son, Brian, really became connected to the arts troupe here and were involved in all of the shows that have been put on. And although I have no talent, they really brought me into that that group and that family. And that's really where we started to build our community here at TBA. And I think through Josh's involvement here with getting to know you, with becoming part of the community, he really, he became interested in converting to Judaism, which is something that, you know, We've been together for more than 20 years, and it certainly wasn't my influence that that you know had him shift in those in that direction. But actually, just a couple of years ago, he and our son Brian were both bar mitzvah together after Josh had converted. So, um, 
yes, I didn't marry a Jewish person, but I am now married to one. That's a great uh, a series of, of moments coming together to make something so special. I would have to say that remembering the bar mitzvah and the two of them standing next to each other uh, was a very moving, very moving thing to see. And I I'm agree. sure for you and for your family and, and for Josh's family too. I think they were, I think everybody just was so proud and moved by it all. And uh, uh, we're certainly lucky that, um, you know, you were slowly uh, pushed into the, um, the larger mix of the congregation because of your, you have such a strong presence and, uh, you know, there's this whole bomber loving heart thing going on. And, and uh, uh, I know that all of us who know you appreciate that very much. So you do have this loving heart ambiance, you know, it's a thing about you. And then when we see what you do, the work that you do, particularly for children with Down syndrome, it's extraordinary the, the kind of work that you've done there and your dedication to it. So, Nikki, what exactly do you do? So I am a pediatric neurodevelopmental disability specialist, which is quite a mouthful. I trained in pediatrics and then did fellowship training in child neurology and neurodevelopmental disabilities. So I'm really focused on child development and neurologic conditions and primarily focus on Down syndrome, and I'm the director of the Down syndrome program at Boston Children's Hospital, and also autism. So I also work in the Autism Spectrum Center at Boston Children's Hospital. About half of my job is providing clinical care, and the other half of my job is research. Could you share with us, Nikki, how, how you came to make this your profession and what exactly you do as it relates to um, the issues of Down syndrome? Absolutely. So uh, my sister has Down syndrome. She is two years older than me and has been the most influential person in my life, I would say, for all of my big life decisions and certainly my career path. She really has just inspired who I am and what's important to me, as has my entire family. My mother is a teacher. My father was a physician, OBGYN. They're both retired now. And I also have a younger brother. And I think that we just grew up in a household where you just took care of each other and you took care of other people. And that was what really inspired our values. And I feel like I remember from a very young age being so impressed by the degree to which my parents had to advocate for various things that we all take for granted uh, because of my sister, whether it be for her health care or for her education or for participating in various activities. You know, everything really felt like it didn't always come so easily, but what we did then achieve was just so much more celebratory and there was so much joy in that. And I, I remember I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do with my career, but I knew who my people were. You know, I knew mm. who I wanted to be with. And people with Down syndrome, people with disabilities really was where I felt like my heart was. It was what I grew up with, participating in all sorts of things related to that, whether it be Best Buddies programs or Special Olympics. It was just, it was the life that I lived. My mom had an arts and crafts club that she started for children with special needs when we were in elementary school. And me and my friends were part of that as as volunteers and helpers. And that was just, that was just what I grew up with. So with it, Nikki, were you also at the same time of the stigma that was part of this, of having someone in your family with 
Down syndrome? Did it did it affect you when you were in high school to have a, a sister with special needs? What 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 was that part of it like? There was absolutely a stigma, and you know it's one of those very visible disabilities, so people can can tell that somebody has Down syndrome by looking at them. And I remember growing up feeling like people were looking at us or feeling like I needed to stick up for my sister and her friends because they were made fun of or teased or bullied. And that was absolutely something that I think pushed me towards advocacy early on because I felt like it was my job to protect as much as I could and to educate people around me. And that was something that my family took really seriously. That was something that um, we felt like was our responsibility to educate the people around us and to help build awareness. So while there was definitely stigma, I feel like there was also a lot of pride. And I remember feeling like my family and my sister were accomplishing things that nobody believed that they could do. And that was something that was also really inspiring to me. And that's true now. That's been true my whole life, that there have been things that they have accomplished and that they have stood for and that they have done that have really just been such an enormous source of pride. What's a memory that you have of one of those things? Well, my sister had her bat mitzvah when she was 13, and she memorized her entire Torah portion by listening to tapes so she couldn't read Hebrew and she couldn't even do that much of the phonetic reading of it in English, but she sat with her cassette tapes, <laughs> with her, wow. pink, her pink cassette tape holder, <laughs> and she would listen to it over and over again and practice it and practice it and practice it. I mean, I think probably our whole family memorized her Torah portion, <laughs> um, but it was really incredible. She did an amazing job and it also was hard earned and she she really fought for that, and it was such a source of joy and pride for our family. It was a huge celebration, and you know, there's a million examples of all of the times that we've been proud, but but that was really one that really impressed me. As you watched your sister practicing over and over, just this, uh, which in a way might be at least there's an aspect of repetition that is sort of comforting in general, but. What was her level of inspiration for why she was doing this? You know, she just felt so connected to our temple community. We attended religious school together our whole lives. She really absolutely loves Jewish holidays, and she just felt so connected to the people in our temple community. And she had been to other people's bar and bat mitzvahs, and I think she just felt like I can do this and was really motivated to do it. I have to say that um, having met your sister a few times when she's come to services, that the complete happiness of being in the synagogue and hearing the music and being present, you know, she, it, it was like, it was palpable. You, you can feel her joy. Uh, that was that wasn't as wonderful to be able to experience. Yes, she absolutely feels at home at the temple. She loves the songs. She loves the the rituals, and she makes decorations for the table for every single holiday, and loves her arts and crafts. But she she really does feel at home in her temple community. You've, I'm sure, as we all have, um, various movies, TV shows 
Um, Down syndrome, people with Down syndrome have made appearances. Some shows have been based around their experiences. What's your general sense of how Down syndrome is portrayed in popular media? What accurate, um, overly simplistic, offensive? You know, in general, I think that the role of actors with Down syndrome can be really inspiring to others in that it shows that these things are possible. I think that for so long, people with Down syndrome, but also people with disabilities in general, were told, you can't, you can't know. And I welcome all of the opportunities for people to break those stereotypes and to break those barriers and to show people that they can. So I think in that regard, it's very positive. I especially appreciate when people with Down syndrome are included in just representation of daily life, where they are portrayed not because they have Down syndrome, but because they are a person and they represent an element of people and humanity. And, you know, when you see, when you're just looking through a, you know, magazine, I don't know if people look through magazines anymore, but when you're looking through a magazine <laughs> or when you see the the ads um, on television and you just see somebody with Down syndrome as a model for, you know, Target or for, you know, a clothing line, not because they have Down syndrome, but just because they are a person. I think that that's really when I'm especially proud because it just shows that people can understand that there is a diverse humanity out there and that people with Down syndrome can be included as well. Could you speak a little bit, Nikki, to the, this within America, let's say over the last hundred years, the representation and the medical response to people who live with Down syndrome and how that's changed uh, so significantly over the, I mean, over the last 20 years, but even a little bit further out, how, how it's changed. Well, I can say we have come a very long way with regards to medical care, with regards to societal attitudes towards people with Down syndrome and other disabilities. I mean, believe it or not, it wasn't too long ago. In fact, when my sister was born in 1976, that was still at a time where advice for medical professionals was institute. And you can't take this child home. They're, the burden on you will be too much. The cost will be too much. Their quality of life will be terrible. And, you know, my parents didn't accept that. And they took their daughter home and had incredibly high expectations of her. And I think that that has made a world of difference. So just the, the change in attitudes towards what can be expected has made a huge difference. It wasn't too long ago where, um, so 50% of children with Down syndrome are born with a congenital heart condition, about half of which require surgery. It wasn't too long ago when people with Down syndrome were not given the opportunity to have corrective heart surgery. Heart surgery for which their outcomes would be just as good as for those who had corrective heart surgery who didn't have Down syndrome. And so that was hard earned. Even now, organ transplantation, for example, is something that people um, with Down syndrome have to fight for. So I think that we've come a long way. We still have a long way to go. But I think in the medical field, there has been a lot of shifts and changes towards attitudes. We are still working on those shifts in other 
fields, for example, education, I think is lagging a little bit further behind. People are still fighting for the right for children with Down syndrome to be included in uh, public education with their peers in inclusive environments. So we are getting there, and I think we have to celebrate the strides that we've accomplished, but there's still a long way to go. And I think that, you know, this pandemic has really illuminated the inequities that still exist. I want to get to that in a minute because that's such a huge and present concern. Before we do, though, I'm curious about your sense of med students who come in, what their preconceptions are about Down syndrome, and the kinds of things you find yourself having to teach about it. So I think that, you know, when it comes to educating others, there's only so much that one can learn from reading about it in a book, right? So you can read about Down syndrome and learn all the medical facts, learn about all the co-occurring conditions um, that people with Down syndrome might have, whether it be, you know, heart problems or various other things. You can learn about intellectual disability and um, slower learning rates and the need for various additional services like speech therapy and, and various things. But I don't think that you really understand what Down syndrome is until you have been exposed and have been around people with Down syndrome because it's so easy to form stereotypes and to um, and to have misinformation sort of guide perceptions. And so I think that with regards to medical students, it's really important to have exposures and to get to know people. So when I was in medical school, a few of us created a program where while we were learning about genetics and learning about different genetic conditions, we connected with families to have individuals with Down syndrome come and meet with medical students and tell mm. them about their lives, tell them about how they spent their time and what was important to them, what they liked to do. And really, I think those are the kinds of things that really help people to understand down syndrome and to understand people who are different in some ways. But one of the themes that always comes up when you have those conversations with people is that, well, there's these differences, but really people with Down syndrome and people with disabilities are much more alike than they are different. Mm -hmm. And that's always something that, you know, I can't teach nearly as well as my sister can teach, you know. And so those are really, I think, important aspects of how to teach people is to really expose them. How would she explain Down syndrome to somebody? Because I'm sure people have asked her or she's been asked. Well, she is very proud and will tell people that she has Down syndrome. She loves to tell people about the arts clubs that she does. She loves to tell people about the theater that she does. And, you know, she is, when she describes her life, she tells you that she has Down syndrome. And then she tells you about all the things that she loves about her life and the people that are important to her and the things that she does that are important to her. From the time you were young, clearly, you had an affinity for looking out for learning from loving your sister. And I mean, it became really a significant part, as you said, of who and what you are. Definitely directed where you wanted to go professionally. And so at this stage, you're involved in a really significant amount of research. Could you describe something about what you're what you're doing in the world of research, what you're looking for, what you're investigating? 
Yeah, about half of the time I spend is providing clinical care, and about half of the time that I spend is doing research. And a lot of my early research efforts were around trying to better understand what influences neurodevelopment in people with Down syndrome. Uh, People with Down syndrome have a wide range of what I would call neurodevelopmental outcomes with some, you know, becoming movie stars and in, in various professional environments and others really needing full support and full care through their whole lives. And we don't really have any sense of why there are those those huge differences. They have the same underlying genetic condition, which is that they have an extra copy of the 21st chromosome. But we don't know what influences how they do health-wise, how they do developmentally. And so we have been trying to look at what are the factors that influence that. Does their educational environment influence that? Does their medical conditions influence that? Is that influenced by other genetic factors or various differences in the way that their brains function? So that's that's the line of work that we've sort of been working on over the years, although a lot of the research has pivoted, especially during this COVID-19 pandemic. And I've been involved in a lot of research lately on how COVID-19 has impacted people with Down syndrome medically from a psychosocial perspective, from an educational perspective, from a quality of life perspective. COVID has really wreaked havoc in all kinds of, in in every corner of our lives and for so many people in so many different ways. And as you're suggesting, the folks with disabilities, people with Down syndrome, that the pandemic has been particularly devastating. Nikki, what are some of the ways in which that's so? That is absolutely true. And it has been really clear in my work and even just my family's experience how devastating the impact of COVID-19 has been on families with children with special needs for a variety of different reasons. Um, I can tell you with regards to my own sister. So she is almost 45. And over the past four or five years or so, has had multiple pneumonia infections that have landed her in the ICU. And so she had previously to this, been quite healthy, quite active. You know, she exercises every single day and um, works in a preschool at at the temple where she's a preschool teaching assistant. And at the end of February, I started to get really nervous about this coronavirus thing. You know, at the time, we didn't even really know exactly what was going on. But because of her health risk, I called my family at the end of February and I said, I think Heather has to stop working at the temple. I think that working with three, four, and five-year-olds for her is going to be really unsafe, and her risk of this infection or other infections is becoming too high. And I had to make that call with very little information. And what it led to has been 10 months now of extreme isolation, where they 
really have had to limit their exposures more than really anybody else I know. You know, not even going to the grocery store with masks. They have mm. food delivered. They have people helping and leaving food outside for them. Um, they they don't go anywhere. She's stopped working. My parents stopped going out to protect her. And that level of isolation, I think, is happening in a much more severe and widespread way for individuals with disabilities. It's true for my patients. So I take care of people with autism as well as with Down syndrome and other neurodevelopmental disabilities. And there are certain characteristics for people with certain de developmental disabilities. So all of us have had our lives and our routines completely disrupted by COVID-19. But if you have autism or if you have Down syndrome and you thrive on your daily routine and the structure and you go to school and you have you know, people hands-on providing teaching that you can't get through a computer screen, then the impact of this is just so much greater. And that has been the case for so many people that I take care of. So many of my patients are really struggling because they cannot get the services and the um, supports that they need to thrive in this environment. And that's been really profound. All of us have just been ha having to make so many sacrifices and adjustments in COVID-19, but the degree to which this has uprooted people's lives when they have a child with disabilities and with special needs is really incomparable. I think one of the just tragic things about the pandemic is the disruption of a partnership that so many families have been able to create with dedicated professionals to help. I mean, it really does take a village to raise a child altogether. But when you have a child with disabilities, exponentially more important to have those outlets for one's child to do things that you can't provide. Not to mention it provides the family just a place to, to breathe and to say, I need everybody in, you know, and that you also talked about the routine, you know, that this is going to happen now, then this happens next, and then this always happens. And there's something that is, seems to be, in so many cases, maybe it isn't, you can tell me more, since you know the neurology of it all, that, that it seems as if we all want some control of our lives. But I think when you're neurologically disrupted, maintaining a routine keeps the earth spinning on its axis. And if you pull one piece out, it can be terribly upsetting for that child. And depending on impulse control can really become extremely problematic. And I'm just even beginning to imagine from your perspective, you know, what happens to kids who and to disabled adults who no longer have an essential piece, like that going to school and seeing these teachers at this time and these kids eating this lunch. And for parents who are working, I, I, I don't know. It must be just like people are in pieces. It really has been devastating for so many people. I think that, you know, we, we forget how dependent families are on the community around them and the support providers and the services to 
raise their children with special needs. And so when the behavioral therapist who usually comes to the house for 10 hours per week can't come and the child can't attend school where they have you know, all of their therapists, all of their teachers, sometimes their only real social outlet, when all of that falls apart, the burden falls on the caregivers and they have to become the behavioral therapist, they have to become the teacher, they have to become the speech therapist, they have to become the medical provider. And, you know, even the research that people have done really shows that the caregiver burden is so enormously high right now and the levels of stress, of fear, and anxiety are really high for families. It is so worrisome when one thinks about how this plays out over the next year um, and what does happen to those families and how do they cope with the trauma of this situation. Um, it feels so overwhelming. It, it really is. I think that one thing that I've always loved about the work that I do and the, the families that I work with is that there is this enormous resiliency that families have, and they work together as a community and really have helped each other out. And I think that that's sort of the one silver lining in all of this is that people have really come together to help each other. And the resiliency that families have been showing has really been inspiring. It's it's hard. And I think that we see that in times of crisis, real disparities, real inequities come to light. And I think that that has absolutely been my observations during this pandemic. So I wonder, Nikki, given that there's this great vaccine, relatively few reactions to it, I wonder where do disabled adults and children fit into the vaccination line? Like, do, where, where do they stand? Yeah, you know, I will say that during this pandemic, my own efforts have really shifted to a lot of advocacy. And there have been a number of areas where we've really had to advocate for people with disabilities. And vaccine is certainly one of them. So prioritizing people with disabilities who we know are becoming infected and having serious illness much more frequently than people without disabilities. I mean, certainly people living in group homes and community residences where COVID has really hit them very hard. And even the staff workers in those homes, how do we make sure that they have the right personal protective equipment and that they're in line for getting vaccinated and prioritized? And that has been really hard work. So there've been a number of issues that we've had to advocate for. Vaccine prioritiza prioritization is certainly one of them. Um, for people with Down syndrome, the research that we've done have shown that individuals who are greater than 40 years old have the same risk of mortality as people without Down syndrome who are 85 years old. Wow. So, What accounts for that? So they have higher levels of severe complications from COVID-19, likely related to underlying respiratory conditions related to potentially their um, immune system and differences in the way that their immune system fights infection. We don't really totally understand, but we do know that 
the mortality rate is higher and they're getting severe COVID infections at a much higher rate. As far as you know, risk of infection, it's also possible that people with intellectual and developmental disabilities aren't able to adopt some of the safety measures that we know have made a huge difference for reducing the risk of, of spread and illness, like wearing a mask and staying six feet apart and good hand hygiene and all of those things may be more difficult for people with disabilities to adopt. And also, a lot of times they are dependent on other support staff to help them with daily living skills. And people need to be in close contact with other people. So I think some of the safety measures and certainly in community living situations, that's been a real a real concern. So there's the issues of vaccine prioritization. There's the issues of medical rationing. You know, we were pivoting towards having to, you know, re-advocate for things that were one with disability rights movement and, you know, Americans with Disabilities Act. All of these things started to be in question in times of crisis. So making sure that people were not excluded from the opportunity to get a ventilator simply because they had a disability. Mm. You know, those sort of things we needed to fight for again. Um, you know, when there's scarce resources in the time of crisis, a lot of the things that we felt like we had achieved, we needed to refight for. The same thing is happening in schools right now with making sure that people with disabilities are getting their special education services. These things are much harder to do when there's scarce resources, not enough time, not enough space, not enough people, not enough money. These are the types of things where people with disabilities are often a marginalized group where they're not getting these things and they're being taken um, for granted. And so a lot of these issues are coming back to play in this time of crisis. How disappointing. It is disappointing. Do you see the school systems, public school systems, stepping up here to the best of their ability? What, what's, your, what's your take on it? I mean, I know there's, God knows how many thousands of school systems all over the country. So I, but just maybe a, just a general sense that you have about it. I think that the issues are really complex. I think that the guidance that is provided, you know, at least in Massachusetts, is really to prioritize having students who have special needs in the school so that they can get the in-person learning that they need. And is that happening? I think that it's happening in a lot of places. It's certainly happening in more resourced schools versus those that are of have lower resources available to them. Um, many of my patients that are living in towns where the COVID rates are extremely high and the poverty rates are extremely high have not been able to be in school in person since March. And mm. that has been extremely difficult. I mean, the students that need the most support and need the most services sometimes are the, the people that also have the highest health risks. And so balancing all of that can be really complicated. You know, inclusion is another piece that has been really hard because with all of the rules around how many people can be in a classroom, well, the first thing that's cut is the student who is needing a paraprofessional with them in the inclusion classroom because it's too many people, they don't have the space. So now there feels like there's this setback where, 
you can come to school, but you can't be educated in an inclusive setting like you were before the pandemic. So in many ways, I think schools are really trying, but it's a really imperfect situation. And I think that students with disabilities are suffering the most. Hmm. You work with two very different communities, those with Down syndrome and those with autism. How does your role differ from population to population? Well, when children come to the Down syndrome program, I, I know what's happening. I know what the diagnosis is. And there are a list of medical conditions that I am taking care of and doing medical tests to screen for if they have higher risk for certain things. And I'm helping to manage the developmental challenges and helping to match the developmental and educational needs with what their developmental needs are. A lot of the work that I do in autism is really starting before a diagnosis, where a family just comes in and says, I'm worried about my child's development, or I'm worried about the specific behavior. And then it's my job to diagnose that child with whether it's autism or developmental delay or a learning disability or a speech delay. So that's when I really dig deep into all of the various developmental and behavioral symptoms that the parent may be concerned about or the teacher may be concerned about and help to make a diagnosis so I can help get them on a treatment path to, again, match what their educational and service needs are going to be based on their overall needs. You know, one comes with a diagnosis and the other comes with symptoms and concerns, but in a lot of ways it ends up being the same sort of skill set where I am trying to understand what the family's concerns are, trying to figure out all of the ways where I can make recommendations and suggestions that will ultimately lead to that child being able to reach their maximum potential and to give them their best shot at being happy and successful. Do you think that autism is a lot more mysterious? Well, it's certainly mysterious in that we really don't know what causes autism. And it can be alarming because the rates in which that autism are diagnosed is just escalating and escalating. Every year we hear that the prevalence rates are higher and higher and higher, and we don't know why. And so that's certainly mysterious. And there's also this level of need to make a diagnosis because there are certain services and educational programs that are available that are specific to what a child with autism might need. And so it's really important to make a diagnosis and to make that diagnosis as early as possible so that a child can receive all of the evidence-based therapies that they will need to be successful. What is the wisdom on pharmacological intervention with both autistic kids as well as with people with Down syndrome? So one of the things that I do has been clinical trial work. And really clinical trials are new for the Down syndrome population. There have been clinical trials looking at how to prevent Alzheimer's disease or treat Alzheimer's disease in older adults with Down syndrome because there is a very high risk of Alzheimer's disease in Down syndrome. But clinical trials to treat 
sort of core impairments, so core cognitive functioning and intellectual abilities, is a much newer thing in Down syndrome. And in fact, it was probably about five years ago that we in we participated in one of the first clinical trials that was specifically designed to target cognition for children with Down syndrome. And this really came with a lot of controversy because there was this feeling of, yes, I want to do anything that I can do to help my child to achieve the most that they can achieve. But on the other hand, how does that all fit into the disability rights movement and the sort of how do we accept our children for who they are and why do we need to try to, quote, fix or change or improve something? And so I will say that within the Down syndrome community, that kind of work is still, it's it's gaining some momentum, but there's also a lot of ethical concerns about it that are still yet to be worked out. In autism, I have found that people are seeking pharmacologic treatments or various types of treatments to try to improve functioning. And I think that right now there is no cure for autism. We have educational and therapeutic services that are really the mainstay of treatment, but we don't really have a treatment for the core symptoms of social skill deficits or some of the behavioral symptoms that can really be very impairing. So I think that a lot of times families within the autism community are seeking clinical trials, research to try to improve the functioning of their children. So there's no rhyme or reason, lots of theories, but no evidence significantly that helps us understand why the rate of autism, or at least it's the diagnosis, is increasing. If you had to lean on one possible thing right now, what would you think? What, What do you say, surmise? Well, we know for sure that there is a genetic component to autism, but not everybody with autism has a known genetic cause that we know of yet. And we know that there are some environmental factors that seem to influence the development of autism, although it's been hard to pinpoint a specific thing that we can say for sure. I think that at the end of the day, it's going to come down to a complex interaction between genetic and environmental factors. And I think that as we learn more and more about the genetics and the way the environment influences the genetics, we will get much closer to understanding the underlying cause of autism. If you could project a couple years into the future, what do you think are some of the changes as it relates to people with disabilities that will come as a result of COVID time? Well, one thing that has been really inspiring is that a lot of the different advocacy groups and disability groups have really worked together in a collaborative way to advocate together. And I think that new partnerships were formed, new collaborations were formed. People that were sort of each doing their own thing, sort of each with their own agenda and their own advocacy efforts have really banded together. And I think that it's always more effective when people are stronger working together. And I think that that will really outlast this. And I think that the recognition that 
all of these different groups need to be working together for the common goals will really be something that changes advocacy efforts in the future for the better. I was looking at the co-authors that have produced the articles that you're uh, responsible for, and I was looking at all the different names. Clearly, people from all over the world are participating, um, and I was wondering why in your field are there so many people collaborating? Has it always been the case, or is this something relatively new? So this has really been new. I think that as soon as we started to hear about COVID-19 and starting to learn about how it was impacting different groups of individuals, including individuals with disabilities, many researchers and leaders in the Down syndrome community all got together and decided to work together as part of a task force to really try to understand the impact of COVID-19 in Down syndrome. So I have been part of a couple of different work groups and task force that have been trying to research this and to develop a knowledge base so that we can make really informed recommendations. But it's been a really nice example of people who historically have never really worked together, all working together because we really need to accelerate this knowledge and learn and discover in a much faster way than typically science has gone. And so being able to work together and feel like people aren't competing but are really collaborating in order to learn more and share information has been really helpful. The same thing is true for all of the different advocacy groups. I work on a couple of different boards of national Down syndrome organizations. And for the first time, all of those organizations worked together to develop a common resource for families, for people with Down syndrome and how they can approach all of the various unknowns about COVID-19 and to help have a unified place where families can go to to learn really important information that they need to guide their decisions and their actions. Um, and so that has been really wonderful to work with all different groups that historically have not worked together in order to support the community. It's an example, a really hopeful example in the world that, um, I mean, how many articles have we read in the past week, month, X number of years about how it's a more and more divisive world, that people are just separating into their own camps and, you know, circling the wagons. And we certainly see that happening. And yet you have scientists who are combining resources, research, information, and the fact that people are willing to go the extra distance to say, and the people that we're studying uh, with the hopes of making their lives better, they're the most important of all. And I think that that, if there's anything that comes out of this period, it's understanding the absolute necessity of people who actually live their lives in order to take care of others professionally, personally, that that wins out over all the things that uh, pull us apart. I want to thank you so much, Nikki, for really illuminating this whole uh, aspect of the human condition and the way that people are treated and understood, people with disabilities, people with Down syndrome, and how vulnerable uh, they are always, always, always needing advocacy, but 
particularly now uh, during this time. And I just commend you for your hard work and your advocacy. And uh, we just are so lucky as a community to have you in our midst. So thank you so much for coming in and sharing uh, your work and your life with us. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to TBA Now. We want you to subscribe. Help us grow this bigger and better. Let us know what you think. Any suggestions, any thoughts for who we should talk to? We are all ears. You can access us by the website, bethavodad.org, or find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.